This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. We'll bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and more. And there was a lot going on this week. A very busy week, so much happening, especially in the markets. Carol, we're going to break that down for you, help you understand the market side, the economic side. It's a fast-moving story, to say the least. There was a lot going on. Another ongoing story, Hewlett-Packard and whether or not they'll do a deal with Xerox. And they came out, HP specifically, came out with their earnings. But, Jason, they also announced a massive $15 billion stock buyback. And that was seen as a way to fend off that hostile takeover from Xerox. So we have a story by Austin Carr about that. Plus, we catch up with Rebecca Greenfield. She oversees all of our diversity coverage. She talks about a story she has in the magazine this week, as well as news of the week, obviously the sentencing, the conviction of Harvey Weinstein. Plus, Reddit's traders, man, they are shaking up the stock market. This story by Lukawa, it's the cover story, and it takes us to a dingy corner of the internet. He went so we didn't have to. But let's begin with global markets. They were rocked by the spread of the coronavirus this week. We take a look at how Wall Street is looking for the right metaphor for the meltdown. Economics editor Christina Lindblad and markets editor Mike Regan joining us now with two stories in the magazine this week. And it is all about the virus and trying to figure out the economic impact and also the market impact. Mike, we got to start with you because we haven't seen this type of global equity sell-off in some time. Yeah, right. It's looking like right now about the worst sell-off since 2018. And what I wrote about is how it's very much calling into question what was kind of the narrative behind this pole bull market, which is the the so-called wall of worry. In other words, you know, we were hit with the European debt crisis. We were hit with the tensions with Iran, the the trade war. And investors really love these sort of little metaphors and cliches that that boil down uh, a complex market into a, a simple notion like, oh, it's climbing a wall of worry. And, uh, Will it be a dead cat bounce? Right, right. I, I know you guys hear these, these metaphors every, every day. day. Every day. Take the stairs up and the elevator down and, and a dead cat. They're all kind of applicable yeah. right now. But I, I think it's important, especially now, because uh, Robert Schiller's out with a book, actually the magazine excerpted uh, not too long ago, called Narrative Economics. And it's, it's basically about the notion about how these little narratives and, and the metaphors uh, sort of are more important than you think in right. sort of dictating where the economic trends, where the market trends go. And I wonder if we're at an inflection point right now where that wall of worry made everyone uh, a little too complacent that the the Federal Reserve, other central banks were there, they had our back, uh, and that it was safe to keep buying despite the scary news. Now, this uh, epidemic is much different because it's not clear what really a central bank can do to sort of uh, counteract this both a, a demand shock and a supply shock. So it's it's one of those inflection points where I think a, a narrative that the market had rallied on for a long time is, is in jeopardy of just being going up in smoke. Well, because part of what everyone needs to figure mm-hmm. out, central bankers included and investors, Christina Lindblad, is what is the economic impact here? How do you measure it? How do you assess it? Well, economists are also looking for stories or going back in history and looking for episodes like this that they could use to model what the, the global economic impact could be. So... You know, we had the Spanish flu. That was obviously one of the worst episodes. 50 million people are believed to have died. We had the swine flu. So right now, 
the World Health Organization has stopped short of calling it a pandemic. Right. But people, there are people out there modeling um, a result of a pandemic. And we've seen, for example, Oxford Economics say that could be one trillion of global output wiped out from an event like that. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, especially when we talked about in some parts of the world, there were economies that were struggling before the virus, right? And whether or not this really tips them into recession. And Italy, certainly, and Italy yeah. could tip other countries in Europe into recession. And also, you know, we were starting to feel better about the global economy because right. Brexit was receding, the trade wars were receding a bit. So that it was like the expectation that 2020 was going to be a year to rebuild. And that is now really off the table. Well, and Mike, obviously the markets were paying very close attention this week to what the president uh, had to say about Mm -hmm. that. We know the markets are always front of mind. For him, politics and governmental response, especially here in the U.S., plays mightily into the market story here. Right, and President Trump's, his own narrative has has been very influential on the market since he was elected. Uh, Obviously, you know, he's very much a cheerleader for the stock market, for the economy. But this is a story that is kind of out of his control, where he cannot... He's trying very hard to control the narrative around the market, trying to keep that confidence high, uh, trying to get people not to panic. But it's one of these occasions where it's simply largely out of his control as far as how far this spreads. Uh, and, it, you know, if we're really due for a, a China-type of situation where we see quarantines in the U.S. Uh, and, and more quarantines in Europe that will really just snuff out the, the economic growth that's so important for the stock market. Well, and I think such a, a, a narrative for a long time was everybody saying it's not going to be such a big deal, certainly in developed markets, and we've started to see that play out. In fact, it played out in the debates uh, this week that we saw among the Democratic candidates. They brought that front and center, and I feel like all of a sudden it picked up a lot of momentum here in the United States and the impact. Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, for a long time, it, it was interesting when the case, the cases really were swelling and getting very serious in China. Uh, you know, the whole market narrative was that, well, it's contained to China. Uh, it's not going to make it here. And it, clearly, obviously, it's leaked out of China. Um, the issue in the United States now is I don't think there's a lot of confidence in ex- what we know about the, the virus. The right. CDC hasn't really been testing that many people. Uh, we know there's this one case in California that they call, you know, spread through the community rather than someone that was brought back from, from Asia. So there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of sort of questioning of authority of, of what we're really dealing with right now. One last question just quickly. China, though, it feels like we're getting maybe some containment in terms of the cases, but the economic impact, do we have a better feel on that, Christina? Not really. I think the number of cases are slowing down, but there's particular concern. You know, at a lot of large companies, people have returned to work, but smaller and medium-sized, right. uh, you know, workers in some cases are stuck back home because they went home for the new the Right. New Year holidays. That's Christina Lindblad and Mike Regan giving us the coronavirus story really in two ways. Obviously, economists and investors and everyone else trying to figure it out. I feel like if there's a theme this week, it's about these stories, whether it's the virus, the market, so many other things, Hewlett-Packard. It's all about kind of stories that aren't quite over yet, right? And we're not quite sure about the ending there. So the week got off to a rocky start. Investors nervous over the spread of the coronavirus. And as more companies weighed in on the impact, Jason, meantime, love this story. It's about a dingy corner of the internet and a Reddit forum with nearly a million users that's apparently become pretty much a force in the stock market. Soaked in profanity and greed. It's my favorite (laughs) phrase in the magazine uh, this week. Luke Cowell wrote it. He joins us in New York City. This is quite a uh, little place that maybe people don't know about that has a huge amount of influence on individual stocks at times. 
Yeah, this has been one of the the fun new developments to track in 2020 because for years we've talked about like when is the retail investor going to get involved with the bull market? Uh, you know, when are we going to have that kind of 1999 late 90s type explosion in retail activity? And it didn't quite happen maybe the way we might expect, but it's really happening in the options market and it's happening uh, via a lot of the companies that have a high nominal share price. So you know, your Teslas, your Amazons of the world, perhaps retail traders cannot actually afford to buy a single share of those names, but you can kind of buy options at pennies on the dollar and make these moonshot bets that increasingly we're paying off and spurring a lot of other recommendations for moonshot bets. Well, take a step back. Tell us about this forum. It's on Reddit. So remind everybody what Reddit is and what the forum is specifically and what's being talked about. So Reddit's kind of your your, your classic uh, internet online forum. It's divided into uh, approximately a zillion subreddits where you deal with you know every subjects. It has you know uh, subjects for one of the, my favorites is the spoiled survivor. I gotta I gotta find out if there's any intel about how that season's gonna go. There's a forum I, for everything. For right? everything. For yeah. everything. So they also have this forum called Wall Street Bets, and it differs from our investing, which is another subreddit, and that these people are not aiming to take it as seriously. It's it's just really for this kind of this wild card, crazy action, this uh, shoot by the hip type of uh, opportunities they see trading. And you know, there's a, a lot of a lot of profanity, as Jason alluded to, a lot of lewd language. It's definitely not uh, PG-13 rated. We can't there, we can't talk about yeah, exactly right some of the yeah. vulg- vulgarity. Yeah, there's not a lot of screenshots I could be able to post, but uh, there's also a lot of like very smart, uh, intelligent commentary that does seep through the cracks, I guess. So, Luke, help us understand how this works with the use of options, because you have a nice line in the story. They've disca- they believe they've discovered a kind of perpetual motion machine in the interplay <laughs> of stocks and options. You alluded to this with the price of stocks, but how does this work? Because people really are, by all accounts, making money doing this. Yeah, so the the interesting way to look at it, or what they appear to think they've discovered, and unfortunately this came from something I wrote earlier on Tesla options and just kind of the the dynamics, is that if you want to know if you want a fresh call option, uh, what you'll have to do is you know you buy it from a dealer. A dealer is not in the business of taking directional exposure. So as soon as the dealer writes that call, the dealer is taking the other side of your position. The dealer is de facto short Tesla. So what the dealer needs to do is buy the the delta equivalent, uh, to get into the Greeks, we won't go too far, but buy the delta equivalent amount of stock that corresponds to your call purchase to make sure they're neutral, to make sure that if the stock goes up, the dealer's protected. But if the stock goes up, the dealer does have to uh, buy a little more. And this kind of this managing of your delta hedge is the way in which this community saw themselves as always having a get-out-of-jail-free card, as always having the greater fool to come and step in. Like in the late 90s, you just had to imagine Imagine it was there, and now they've invented a mechanism by which you know this can actually happen. As long as we have the courage of our convictions to buy as many call options as humanly possible, especially in smaller names, names with a lot of short interests, uh, relatively illiquid names, we're going to be able to kind of force this this gamma chase on the part of dealers. Let's be specific and give an example. Like I think you wrote in the story that Virgin Galactic, for instance, really wasn't on anybody's radar until these guys started talking about it. Uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, a crazy story. I think the the best Best example, though, out of the list yeah. would probably be Lumber Liquidators. So that's, mm-hmm. you know... Yeah. 
that's not as much of a story stock that you can get behind as, you know, electric cars or a space travel, space tourism. This is really, really kind of plain fair. Uh, but what was discovered is that somebody on this message board who had not posted but had been a member for three years laid out this very elaborate, uh, lengthy at least, I, I can't go into the you know commentary on how good or not it was, but lengthy, long thesis for lumber liquidators. The next morning... Call volumes in lumber liquidators, I, I think they were something like 77 times <laughs> the 20-day average. Right. This was the only source of anyone talking about lumber liquidators at all. And that user was subsequently banned from the subreddit because even Wall Street Bet said, hey, like, we have to police our turf here. We can't let this be a ground for pure kind of pump and dump type scheme. You know, one lo- user lamented, I wish we could just go back to losing inordinate <laughs> amounts of money because that's right. what, you know, that's the history of, of what Wall Street Bets has generally done on all of these kind of uh, crazy calls. So where does this go from here, Luke? I mean, is this something that ultimately the SEC takes an interest in, that other market regulators may examine, or is this ultimately, as you alluded to, going to have to be self-policed as so much on Reddit is? I, I, I could see a case for regulators uh, maybe getting involved. I could see a case for regulators thinking this is uh, too small ball to really get into. And, you know, the the activity does appear to have been are relatively coordinated. I'm not sure how much of a, a difference that'll make. But I, I think the stepping back, the big picture, where does this go from here that we should care about is the mounting evidence that, you know, this is no free lunch here. There is no perpetual money machine. Just because you have the courage of your convictions and are loading up on call options, that doesn't mean somebody else who's a heck of a lot bigger is taking the other side. And that doesn't mean uh, something like escalating concerns over the coronavirus can come in and just completely flip the table on you. Just the idea that that we've been learning over the past few sessions is that, you know, perhaps retail, although it's exerted immense power over mm. parts of the market this uh, this year, maybe isn't always the, the end-all be-all. Well, and I think that's what's interesting, right? Whether what this says about, we've been constantly talking about the retail investor coming back to the market. Is it a sign, just like the day traders of the 1990s and, yeah. you know, their chat rooms, right, and, and talking up trades, is this a sign that the retail or individual investor is kind of coming back to the market? Uh, most most certainly, you see it a little bit on the on just the pure equity flow side. Uh, Julian Emanuel, who's at BTIG, has said, you know, February yeah. 2020, uh, retail is back. I'm seeing it in the flows. Where you're seeing it much more, though, is in the options market. And one way to look at this is the average size of an options trade has gone down to just uh, 6.7 contracts. It was about twice that mm. uh, just a few years ago. So pretty rapid shrinkage. That's Luke Kawa, who follows the stock market for us, this story in the finance section of the magazine. But it's fascinating. It really does take us back to the 1990s when we had day traders and they could really create kind of a story or a narrative in the markets. And this is kind of the 2020 version of it. Right. It answers the question, what happens when, you know, sort of weirdos in the stock market uh, get onto (laughs) Reddit? And uh, the answer is a little bit scary. Yeah, absolutely. So news this week about HP pledging to buy back about $15 billion worth of stock. Why? Well, safe to say it made shareholders a lot happier and it could potentially help fend off a hostile takeover from Xerox. But 
there's so many moving parts to this. Writing about Xerox and the HP battle this week is Austin Carr. He joins us right here in New York. It is a bit of a battle, and the story is still being written, although you had to write about it kind of where we are so far this week. How did you approach it? Well, there was just so many moving pieces within the last couple of months. Uh, so Enrique Lores, who's the CEO of HP, only came in November uh, to the role, but that must seem like ages ago because they had a $35 billion hostile takeover, a lot of pressure from shareholders and, and activist investors like Carl Icahn, who owns a significant stake in HP, really pushing them to merge with uh, Xerox, which is this photocopier giant, a 113-year-old company. Right. And HP has sort of been pushed up against the wall to say, what are we going to do to fend off this acquisition or merger? And how can we just impress our shareholders enough to remain independent? It's such an interesting story, such a kind of, I feel like, old-time historical battle, because you've got kind of, you know, corporate raider, activist, Carl Icahn. He owns shares of both. I think he owns more of Xerox, mm-hmm. right, in terms of a position. He has been pushing to get something done, and he doesn't really necessarily care if Xerox buys HP or HP buys Xerox, it feels like. That's correct. The one thing he has signaled is that he would prefer Xerox's management to to keep uh, managing the company if they did merge. Mm -hmm. But he just wants a merger. He thinks there's a lot of synergies. You you know when you hear the word synergies, it's probably bad. That just means cost efficiencies, layoffs, things like that. They want to find overlap. And there are areas, to to be fair, where it might make sense, where areas that Xerox is stronger in versus HP and vice versa. But overall, HP is a massive player. You know, this is a, a sort of colossal giant compared to Xerox, which is very tiny. Right. But these are arguably two of the biggest innovation labs of the 20th century. And it's really interesting to see them fight over essentially printers today. That's what I want to talk about. One last thing, though, in terms of the news this week. I mean, HP, with announcing earnings, Mm -hmm. announcing that buyback, they did also kind of keep the door open that they're open to maybe doing some kind of deal, correct? Yes, that, that's correct. So uh, HP basically uh, wanted to walk a fine line. They, they, as you mentioned, they, they announced $15 billion in, in uh, buybacks over the course of three years. Mm-hmm. They, they promised to really ramp up cost savings. Uh, and then they also said, you know, we're open to talking about Xerox. But on the earnings call and after when I talked to Enrique, they wouldn't go into specifics. They would just say, hey, we're open to it. But I think that's just because they want to remain flexible in case shareholders don't really like this plan or the market didn't respond to it well. These were companies that were revered especially HP, if I think about it, but Xerox too, for their R&D and being kind of at, you know, the front wave when it came to technology. Absolutely. I mean, if you look around your office right now or your phone or computer or whatever, most of those technology gadgets, innovations probably started with with Hewlett Packard, which was founded in 1939. It was the first garage startup in Silicon Valley, as well as Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, which is known as Xerox Park. Right. And that's where Bill Gates and Steve Jobs went to found the graphical universe uh, user interface that ended up in Windows and Mac operating systems that sparked the PC revolution. I mean, these were the two pioneering innovation labs of the 20th century that, you know, everything from, from Google X to Amazon's Lab 126 has sort of modeled themselves after, as well as every garage startup in, in San Francisco. Um, so it's really fascinating to see them go from that to just over the past decade or two, really narrowly focused on photocopiers, printers, as well as ink. That's really their lifeblood. Well, and what's funny, Austin, is and you put some numbers to this. I mean, printing is still a big business. Yeah. It's, it's <laughs> really insane. I mean, I, you know, I, I do work for a magazine, so we're glad print is still around. I print a ton of stuff. Just <laughs> yeah, I know. There's look a at lot like of my pile around. But uh, IDC, the research firm, estimates there's about 3.2 trillion pages printed every year. So just think about about how many printers that takes. Just think about how much ink that takes. And, and that's really where these big profits lie. I mean, if, I'm sure you've had the experience the of going to Staples. Everyone is frustrated with that. But you also got to think, these printers are super cheap. You can get like a really high-end printer for about 60 bucks, uh, but then you're going to pay 30 40 
50 bucks for a cartridge every 100, 200 pages, uh, depending if it's color or black. Uh, and that's where HP makes a huge no- amount of its profits. The, the printer division actually represents 63% of its profits wow. uh, and brought in about $12.9 billion last year. A significant amount came from ink and toner, of all things. Not exactly the most forward-thinking thing. Which is really funny when you think about the split up, when Meg Whitman split up HP, Hewlett-Packard, right? And there was kind of the old business, the printing business, which nobody thought was going to yeah. do well. And then it was kind of the forward-looking business, right? Um, and that was the business that kind of struggled. So it's interesting to see how this has kind of played out. It's really fascinating. I mean, I remember back to that, that period yeah. in 2015, Meg Whitman essentially took the cloud and AI and, and consulting parts right. of the business, which are the, quote, sexier parts. I mean, if you talk to everyone at HP, they, they, they admit that that was this sexier stuff to take. And uh, HP Inc., which is the uh, was stuck with the printer and PC business, which were at that time seen as just dying. And then they had this turnaround, which was partly read, led by their their current CEO, who used to lead the printer division. Sales shot up between uh, 2016 and 2018. The stock shot up. PC sales even rose during that time. And that's Austin Carr. His story with Nico Grant, it's a must read in this week's magazine because it takes a snapshot of, as you said earlier in the show, Carol, this ongoing story. We don't even know how it's going to end. And even the players in the midst of it, like Carl Icahn, they have different ideas about how they want it to end. And I love the line in his story. It's like hard to fathom that these two companies are where they are today. Because if you think about how many decades ago they were temples of engineering, those are Austin's words. It's perfect. And then this is where they are today. And they're struggling to figure out the future. I sort of want to tell my 1980 (laughs) self about this story related to Hewlett Packard and Xerox. This week, Harvey Weinstein, we got a verdict. Weinstein was convicted of rape and a criminal sexual act more than two years after allegations against the former Hollywood power broker really sparked the Me Too movement. Now, Rebecca Greenfield, she is in charge of our diversity coverage here at Bloomberg News, and she and her team have been all over this story. It did, first of all, it was just two years ago. It feels like so much has happened. It feels like an eternity sometimes. And then you look back and you're like, wait, that was only fall 2017. I have to check myself every time we write these stories. But yeah, those two years feel like a lot has changed because a lot has changed. Well, let's talk about that because I do think, um, and it was Harvey Weinstein and then other cases that came out. And I do feel like companies are less tolerant when they find an executive or senior executive and there's something that has gone on that is either harassment or just doesn't seem quite right. Like sometimes you get, you know, the executives are out. So tell me, let's go through what's changed specifically. Yeah. So 2017 happened, Harvey Weinstein, all these allegations came out and something different happened, which is people were shocked and appalled and actually cared. And that led to more similar allegations. And the thing about the Harvey Weinstein allegations is there were a lot of them against him, over a hundred. So that happened to lots of powerful people where there were multiple people coming out and saying, this person sexually harassed me or assaulted me or was inappropriate. And I think the sheer volume of accusations against people and then the sheer volume of people that were accused of things kind of led to this reckoning about what is going on in our workplaces. Well, let's talk about that because I do think, you know, among the things that you cover in a story that's uh, out on the Bloomberg and at Bloomberg.com, you talk about things like bystander training in the workplace. And I think this is an important one, right? It's not just the individual who does the act, but it's also those who are aware of it, right? Yeah. So, Awareness has definitely changed in the workplace that sexual harassment happens and it's not okay. And there have been shifts both um, 
in formally and informally. So I would say formally is this bystander training that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, more employees than ever undergo mandatory sexual harassment cha- training, but also the type of training has changed. Mm-hmm. So bystander training focuses on training people in the workplace who aren't necessarily involved in the harassment to see it and to notice it and to be able to identify it and to be able to know who to contact and, and what to say. And research has found that is more effective than just the kind of training that we all know where it's like, this is sexual harassment. <laughs> Don't do this. If this happens to you, it's wrong. Don't do this. You might get fired. There's also some things like a Weinstein clause, right? And this is in M&A deals. Tell us about that. Yeah. So there are these things called the Weinstein clause, which is in M&A deals where they basically protect the buyer if something happens, like somebody important, like say the CEO or the chairman um, gets gets called out for sexual harassment, that the buyer can recoup some of those losses because there are severe reputational damages that come in the era of Me Too. One of the things, and I just want to go, um, one last thing is uh, things like NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, or even arbitration, which we've seen in a lot of companies, certainly in the financial community, technology community, that really prevents when something happens for it being you know, uh, put out to the, the wider public. That's slowly going away. Yeah, I think these what were considered standard tools, um, you know, ways to just handle harassment claims are now being seen as ways to cover up harassment claims, especially for repeat offenders. So the non-disclosure agreement is definitely under scrutiny. Um, Bloomberg LP and Condé Nast just last week said that they were going to stop using them for sexual harassment claims. Some other organizations have let people out of their non-disclosure agreements so that we can really get some sunlight on these accusations. Um, I would say forced arbitration is the other really big change. Um, you know, it's it's a dispute resolution process that lots of companies use for lots of things. But in sexual harassment claims, it's again seen as this way to litigate these claims behind closed doors. And that Again, if there's a repeat offender, nobody's going to hear about it. So multiple companies, Facebook, Alphabet, um, and recently Wells Fargo have said that they won't use that anymore for sexual harassment. Bloomberg's change came after Michael Bloomberg was criticized in a Democratic presidential debate for their usage. Now, he also said he would release three women from non-disclosure agreements, NDAs, with his company. Bloomberg, of course, is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio. All right, moving on now, Rebecca, there's a story in the magazine you wrote along with Cynthia Coons. It's focusing on abortion clinics. You really go into what's going on in terms of running those clinics in the United States. Let's start with Amy Hagstrom Miller. Tell us about her. Yeah, so you may remember her as the face of a victory in front of the Supreme Court four years ago, or less than four years ago, um, Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstadt. She won a 5-3 decision that overturned this Texas law that said doctors had to have admitting privileges at hospitals nearby if they were going to perform in abortion clinics. And she won that case. That case had closed her clinic because that it's a really almost impossible standard for abortion doctors to meet because they don't actually send very many patients to hospitals, so it's hard to get privileges. Right. Um, and it closed her clinics, and it closed a lot of the clinics in Texas, and so that was a big victory for her. You might remember at the time, it was a big victory for abortion rights right. activists. So big step forward. Yeah. And then? And then, you know, we checked back in with her. You know, she opened back up one of her clinics that closed, or some of her clinics that closed, and this Austin clinic... Um, was targeted by anti an anti-abortion group that basically forced her out of her lease 
where she had been for a very long time by offering her landlord a big commitment, a five-year commitment, saying we can we can pay you for five years. And, and the landlord said, I can't, can you match that? And she said, I don't have the money. So it forced her to move out of this space, effectively shutting her down again for reasons that had little to do with the laws. And this was interesting. It was in Austin, which is considered a much more liberal city. Yes, definitely. I think we discovered that a lot in our reporting. A lot of the issues that clinics face aren't in areas that we consider to be particularly hostile to abortion. I mean, Austin is in Texas, but she so she had to find a new space. Yeah. And she said it took her nine months and she toured 80 places because people didn't want to be in the business of abortion, even in Austin, Texas. Well, she talks about, she's coined this phrase, an abortion tax. Yeah. Tell us what that is. It's not an official tax, right? But in essence, it is. Yeah, so doing business. it's something we discovered, and she had this great way of phrasing it, the abortion tax, which is added fees or costs or burdens that just by, because you're in the business of abortion, you have to pay. And that's things like spending a bunch of months and $100,000 to move because somebody forced you out of your lease. That's mm-hmm. things like, you know, a window washer is not going to work re- with you because they, they're telling you that, you know, your window, windows are too old when this abortion provider said, I can read between the lines. They just don't want to be in business with me. Or having to find a waste management company that's not being targeted by activists because the ones targeted by activists, they don't they don't want to be in that business. And right. so it's just this litany of expenses that add up, making it really difficult, if not impossible, to stay in the business of abortion. And that includes, you know, you've got greater security costs, but you also have insurers who don't want to do business with you anymore. Yeah, we discovered this, this interesting thing that was happening with insurance, and this is business insurance, so workers' comp, property insurance, mm-hmm. where insurers were saying, you know, I, we've decided we're not going to renew you anymore because it's they've deemed them too risky. Essentially, an abortion clinic in many ways is a small business, but this is like a whole other layer on top of it. So what has it meant, um, Rebecca, in terms of we have less abortion clinics? There are fewer independent abortion clinics, about you know a third fewer since 2012 mm-hmm. in the U.S. And also, there are fewer abortions in states that have been the most harshly targeted by abortion restrictions that close clinics down. So there's definitely some some trends that we can point out. So you guys have some great statistics in there that this is happening, and this is at a point where if you survey most adults, right, they are in favor of having an abortion option out there. Yeah, I think my understanding of abortion, too, is we talk a lot about Roe v. Wade or Mm -hmm. these big Supreme Court cases. But if you get on the ground, there are so many other issues that clinics are facing or that women who want to get abortions are facing that really have little to do with Roe v. Wade. And I think that's that's what our story, I hope, shows. Okay, but then to go to the Supreme Court, because there's another case right coming up this summer. And what will that ultimately decide? In March, the Supreme Court's going to start hearing arguments for a case about a Louisiana law that is nearly identical to the law that shut Amy Hackstrom Miller's clinic down. Mm -hmm. Basically, they're going to be deciding if that law is okay in Louisiana and if the court, which is now more conservative than it was when Amy was in front of it, decides in favor of the law that will close clinics down in Louisiana, and then potentially other states are going to pass similar laws, which could potentially close more clinics down, and you can 
basically go from there and see what happens to um, these businesses and the women who want to get abortions. That's Rebecca Greenfield, who manages diversity coverage here at Bloomberg. Two stories, two different stories, a sobering one about abortion clinics. You would think at this point, how many decades after abortions were made legal, that it would be easier to run an abortion clinic. It's not. So we're seeing things kind of slide back. On the other hand, with the Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement, we have made some progress and there have been some changes in the workplace. It's a really important pair of stories, uh, as you say, and grateful to Rebecca because she really does sum it up really nicely. Let me throw out some numbers for you. More than 82,400 coronavirus cases they have been reported, with more new cases being reported outside China than within the country for the first time, highlighting the spread of the epidemic. Now, the first U.S. case of the virus was confirmed in Washington State at Providence Regional Medical Center in Everett. That hospital is part of the $25 billion Providence St. Joseph Health System, which includes 51 hospitals, more than 800 clinics, and 115,000 caregivers. Dr. Amy Compton Phillips is Chief Clinical Officer and Executive Vice President at Providence St. Joseph Health, Health, and she joins us on the phone from Everett, Washington. Um, Dr. Compton Phillips, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. So how do you now prepare for maybe what's expected in the U.S., and what are your expectations for the virus spread here in the United States? Our expectation out here is that um, this virus is now circulating in the community and we need to be prepared for for an influx of patients with symptoms. Um, and so that includes making sure that, that um, all of those access points in the community, so doctor's offices, we have express care clinics and Walgreens, we have urgent cares, all of those need to be prepared for people with symptoms. Um, so we're really revving up our capacity not only to, to take care of patients when they come in, but also our online capabilities, um, helping people have access to care through phone and through um, uh, video visits so that they can get care from home and minimize the risk of transmitting the virus further. Um, And then in our acute care hospitals, we're making sure we're prepared not only to keep patients isolated as we need to with any person with infections with, uh, that can be transmitted through respiratory droplets, um, but also who may need more intensive care, so with respirators and ventilators and, and more acute services. So it really is an all-out attempt to make sure that we're ready and able to care for patients should this get significantly right. out of control. So, Dr. Compton Phillips, obviously there's a whole lot of information and a lot of misinformation out there. Help us understand, just as sort of human beings in the world, what should we be doing? What are you advising uh, folks to do to to minimize it, but but also to sort of deal with this as this potentially spreads? Sure. Well, I you know I think the key thing is right now, don't panic. Yeah. <laughs> one one case does not mean you know we have an epidemic here in the U.S. Um, it is like a very bad flu bug, and people we've been dealing with the flu, and nobody's afraid of the flu. Right. Um, so so is this much to, worse than the flu? This. I think that's what we're trying to understand a little bit. It is a more severe version. Um, so it, it causes very similar symptoms. It causes fever, headache, uh, cough, shortness of breath. Um, It's just so far in the statistics out of China, which we'll see if they play out here in the States, um, that of of the people who get this infection, about 20% get a severe case. Um, So it goes from from the average flu symptoms to to having a cough so severe and shortness breath so severe, you actually need supplemental oxygen. Um, And in 2.5%, around somewhere between 2 and 3% of cases, it gets so severe it causes death. 
Mm. Um, so one in five patients getting this infection in China needed needed much more acute treatment. And that's significantly worse than the flu statistics in most years. Um, so it is like a very, very virulent flu. One of the challenges is that, um, you know, most of us don't have antibodies to this version of coronavirus. And so being a novel infection, mm-hmm. there's not any kind of what we would call herd immunity around where people are, are more resistant to this germ. And so you, know, you described a little bit of what you guys are doing at, at your facilities. Um, you know, what should people expect if they go into a doctor's office or a hospital in terms of how they may be quarantined or how they may be treated? Yeah, what we have been doing up until yesterday um, is asking about travel history. And, and if you if you have been traveling, we put a mask on you and make sure you're isolated. If you're traveling and have symptoms, we would also um, uh, put you in a in specific kind of isolation rooms, including negative pressure rooms, so that we could do a test safely and send that test off to the CDC um, or, or to the State Department, depending on where we are, if the State Department has capacity. Um, so that we could actually do this new test for uh, for COVID nineteen. Um, that said, now that now that we have at least one confirmed case in the U.S., um, we're working with the CDC and with our departments of health in each state to say how broadly do we need to be testing patients here on the West Coast, which tends to be um, ground zero for infections that are coming over from the Pacific Rim. I mean, have we learned something from treating that first uh, patient that you guys, um, that, that actually was in your hospital system? We have. We've learned that one is that in our, our first patient, and now we've treated several patients, actually, mm-hmm. but in our first patient, he actually did quite well for several days and then took a turn for the worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we know that we can't just we can't just write it off and say, you're going to be fine. We actually are, are being a little more cautious and watching people so we know what the natural history of this new disease looks like. Um, and the second thing is that um, we were, again, in conjunction with the CDC and and um, several several of our national and international experts, um, we right. were able to get him access to an experimental drug, okay. uh, which made a big difference in his care. And that's Dr. Amy Compton Phillips, the chief clinical officer over at Providence St. Joseph Health. I mean, this story, we talked about it earlier. It's obviously a market story. It's also an economic story. It's also a human story, and we're all trying to figure out how to deal with this. It's already the world's largest retailer, but did you know that it also already has a $36 billion pharmacy business, Jason, and now it wants to move more into the healthcare business? We're talking about Walmart. And this takes us uh, very close to my hometown Mm -hmm. of Atlanta, down there in Georgia. A big experiment going on there in the exurbs, I guess you would call them. Matt Boyle went there. He covers all things Walmart for Bloomberg. He joins us in New York City. So what'd you find there? I found a really interesting business story, Jason. It's really funny. I mean, Walmart already has, as you said, a big healthcare business. Yeah. They are the 400 you know, million prescriptions a year, a $36 billion business, but they want to get deeper into healthcare spending. It's $3.6 trillion of spending in this country. It's disorganized. It's confusing. Nobody likes you know, paying for healthcare. They don't know what they're going to pay. Walmart's like, we can bring you know, some clarity to this. We're Walmart. 
So let's go ahead and do it. What's interesting, Matt, and Jason, I thought, I don't know if you, this jumped out at you as well, but I mean, Walmart already has 150 million weekly customers, right? So yeah. think about that's their base that they can yeah. already maybe tap into for healthcare. Exactly. They've got all those people going into their stores already. A lot of them are lower income. A lot of them are either uninsured or underinsured, or they don't like their healthcare plan. Walmart's saying, hey, you're coming in for groceries already. It's a Saturday afternoon. Do you need you know, do you need a flu shot? Is your kid sick? Do you need a tooth, a tooth cleaning? And the people they are seeing in these new centers, now granted, there's only two so far. Mm-hmm. The third one's going to open this summer. But the people they are seeing in these health centers, some of them have not been to a doctor or a dentist in over a year. You know, this is not a totally new concept. And I think about what's going on at CVS specifically, uh, you know, and some of the other big box or, or I guess not big box, but but more the idea that the doctor's office is moving into retail in a lot of ways. So they're not alone here. Yeah, they're certainly not alone here. Uh, CVS is going very heavy into this as well with their new health hubs. They want to have 1,500 of them by the end of next year. But this is really rethinking retail health care. The problem with the care clinics or minute clinics, as uh, CVS has called them, they've been around, yeah, over the past decade, um, but they're cramped, they're small. And the problem on the retailer side is they never see enough volume to justify their fixed cost. So for that reason, Walmart has had these for the past six years, but they only have 19 of them. With these new health centers, they are really blowing it out. These things are 6,000, 7,000 square feet, 12 exams rooms, you know, eye care, dental. If you can't hear the doctor, they'll send you in for a hearing check even. I mean, and then, of course, when you're done, they move you right out to the pharmacy. Well, tell me how this works. And that's what's amazing. There are big centers, as you said. You can have your teeth cleaned. You can get counseling. Let's say you have anxiety problems or other problems. Um, Want a lab test on Sunday? I would love that. It's a little bit more convenient. How cool. They don't, though, take insurance, right? And they've got no, a they price do. list. That's, oh, they yeah, they, they oh, will, tell- but they are guessing most people, even if you have insurance, right. um, you, if you don't want to deal with the co-pays and the deductibles, you might just pay the flat cash fee. So when you're signing up for your appointment, you do tell them, I'm, do I have insurance or not? Am I in Medicare? And they will adjust for that. But for a lot of people, they might just say, I'll just pay the 25 bucks flat flat cash fee and not have to deal with, with Aetna or Blue Cross or, or whatever. Um, so for the insurance companies, they're probably thinking, hmm, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's Walmart is really you know disrupting the healthcare sector here. But what about that price list? And I am curious, right? Yeah. I don't know if you thought about this, Jason. I think about it. I see you know the insurance claims and what things you know supposedly cost and then what they've kind of uh, negotiated, right, yeah. um, with the provider. So what is the price Walmart list Walmart like? wants to simplify all of that. You walk in, as a huge digital uh, billboard just saying, here's all the prices. Teeth cleaning is 25 bucks. Mental health, a dollar a minute. I mean, that's a real interesting one there. Is a lot of these uh, retail health care clinics historically have never provided right. mental health. Right. And often you walk in, let's say you get a physical checkup, and the doctor notices you're really anxious, or maybe you've just been diagnosed with diabetes, you're worried. They can say, Send you right over to the next exam room mm-hmm. where people, you know, you'll get the counseling you need. Now, of course, any doctor will do that, but it would require you normally to book another appointment with a therapist. Right. And then who has time for that? And a lot of people wouldn't end up following through. But at Walmart, they just shuffle you into the next exam room. And I think that model will work for a lot of people. And so, Matt, I believe this is not their first go at this, right? They've experimented at least on the on the margins here, and it didn't go so well last time. Yeah, I mean, they've been doing this for some time. The original, yeah, retail health clinics did not work for Walmart. They didn't really work for for anyone. Uh, Walmart has also been distracted by other strategic priorities. Remember, they're the biggest uh, retailer in the world. Uh, in the '90s, they were building out supermarkets in the food business, and over the past five, ten years, they've had to build out their e-commerce business to battle Amazon. 
Amazon. So healthcare has never been a real strategic priority for the company until now, though. And now it certainly is. Well, and let's go there because, man, I feel like we're ignoring the elephant in the living room. I mean, there have been the cases of where, you know, Walmart employees themselves weren't yeah. getting great health care. Um, it's an interesting company that, you know, offers a lot of different things, including cigarettes and guns. And some might say, well, wait a minute, they're trying to move, you know, much more to health care. And it seems exactly, to kind of go girl. against yeah. some of their history. The trust factor DNA. is going to be big here. I mean, Walmart, yes, historically has never taken very good care of their associates on the wage side and also the benefit side. There was mm. an internal memo from 2005 that leaked um, that really said that pe- you know Walmart associates um, and their children, a lot of them were uninsured or on Medicaid because they simply couldn't afford Walmart's own health care plan. And Walmart called it a reputational issue, basically saying we're getting killed for this in the, in the press. Now, that was then, though. Walmart knows that they're going to have to overcome this sort of trust factor. But for me, the question is this. For a lot of people, it's not, do you want Walmart to provide your health care? Is do you have to have Walmart? Right. You know, For a lot of people, right. they kind of they need it. It's Saturday morning. Your kid is sick. You need a lab test. A woman I spoke to down in Georgia needed a lab test done on the weekend. Walmart was the only place open, and it was 10 bucks cheaper. She went in, got it done. Right. And oh, by the way, she filled a prescription there, too. She didn't right. normally do that. Picked up some avocados on yeah. the way out. Right? Like, I mean- it's going to build Walmart's store traffic yeah. and their regular you know, traffic as well. And that's good for them, certainly. Walmart has to worry about Amazon here as well. Talk to us about that showdown. Amazon bought an online pharmacy pill pack a couple years ago. They've been talking about drone deliveries. They have this huge consortium with J.P. Morgan Chase and Berkshire Hathaway that's looking to reduce the cost of their own employees' health care. But not a lot has really moved forward with that. Obviously, they've gotten a lot of headlines. Walmart is saying, we need to play to our strengths. Our strength is our stores, our 4,760-some-odd stores in the U.S. And remember, this is not just going to take place in the health centers. What's not in the story, but what Walmart told me is they see this moving into telehealth as well. Basically, uh, healthcare in your home. They already have a division set up for this. That's the next step after this. And they're already doing it in their Sam's Club warehouse division with a company called 98.6. All right, that's Matt Boyle, who covers all things retail for us here at Bloomberg. I always love talking to Matt and his reporting. He went down to Georgia. He checked out what Walmart's doing in terms of their healthcare centers. Well, Walmart, already a big player when it comes to filling prescriptions, but man, they want to do even more. Well, and it's going to be a competitive space. The healthcare Mm -hmm. landscape changing pretty dramatically. Don't count Walmart out for sure. Not a day goes by without a company talking about a green initiative. And Jason, that includes the big tech companies like Google, which this story talks about. It's got commitments to environmental sustainability, and yet there's an element to it that some might say is not in keeping with the spirit of going green. Well, and this story feels so 2020, Carol, in a lot of Mm -hmm. ways because it's about big tech, but it's also about the economy in the United States, small towns grappling with employment and really an existential question about their future. Jeff Muskus in New York with this story. Tell us what you found. This is an emblematic story in many ways. Yeah, the uh, the small town of uh, Becker, Minnesota, has done about two things well for the past forty years or so: burn coal and pay taxes. Um, the uh, the Sherco uh, power plant, uh, what, what locals call the Sherburn County Generating Station, it's about four times the size of your average coal power plant, uh, and produces uh, enough power to to light up about half of Minnesota. It's also the the worst uh, emitter in the region. Uh, and so when uh, when Google was looking around for places in the area to put a new 600 
$100 million data center, uh, part of the, uh, the, the sales pitch, uh, local and county and state officials uh, and the, the local utility player, uh, Excel Energy, was, uh, okay, in addition to the usual you know, raft of, of tax breaks, uh, the company's getting uh, exempted from local and county uh, taxes for the next 20 years. Uh, they're also getting kind of sweetheart deals on uh, their their energy bills and uh, you know in ways that are going to help it uh, offset its uh, carbon emissions by um, you know burning this coal for the next ten years before they can uh, push Excel to close the power plant earlier than expected and and in the meantime uh, subsidize some of the cost of their wind power offsets. There's a line in the story that I really love and I feel like it speaks to the heart of the story. Google's arrival in Becker, an object lesson in the unique leverage that big tech companies outsize power our needs um, and what it gives them over local utilities at a moment when few industries' power needs are growing. So this, if you think about a Google, right, and maybe it's an Amazon, pick anyone that's got huge data centers, right? They need a ton of power to fuel these data centers. Yeah, as, as you guys were just saying, this, this story has been kind of a long time coming right. for the past uh, you know, 15 years or so as uh, power needs have sort of flatlined across a wide array of industries while uh, the tech companies' needs for these data centers increasingly all over the country and the world have really taken off, uh, you know, is giving them a, a ton of leverage, uh, you know, probably unique leverage relative to that of other industries in, in wrestling with utility companies that, you know, previously had been kind of the big dogs in these conversations. Right. So it's big power versus big tech, right. but big power really needs big tech right now, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. There, you know, even uh, utility players that are, you know, local or even regional monopolies uh, are seeing demand pretty flat across most other kinds of companies besides uh, big tech right now. And so that, that's uh, adding pressure on local politicians and state regulators right. to, you know, say yes to deals that, you know, in many cases are, are not as good for the local communities as, you know, the the uh, kinds of power plant setups they're replacing, you know, even though they're, they're definitely markedly better for the environment. Well, let's talk about that specific issue, Jeff, because Google, very savvy here. You know, we have come to learn, I feel like, over the past few years that big tech has gotten very smart about figuring out ways to get its own way and to get its own way to its advantage. Advantage, economic uh, advantage. They played this one pretty perfectly based on the reporting that you guys did. Yeah, our reporter Maya Frazier uh, found by you know looking through documents and talking to folks there that uh, you know on the on the ground Google went in you know uh, in as early as. Uh, 2017, uh, you know, a couple of years before the deal was announced, uh, you know, under the guise of a couple of shell companies, uh, only revealing its its identity to the public on the the very day that the the deal was passed through by the Minnesota Public Utilities Commission. Uh, this is becoming kind of a de rigueur for uh, tech companies that are trying to, um, you know, extract favorable terms for. Uh, data center construction and tax breaks across the country. But, you know, again, this is kind of, um, you know, a uniquely dispositive case as far as uh, both the degree to which uh, tech companies have uh, power to control uh, how the deals go and also power to control the narrative around them. Well, and th and they know, Jeff, that basically, and, and you have a local official who essentially says this, like, listen, we would have loved for Google to come to town without all these incentives. But the reality is, is that we're sort of hoping over the next 20 years, it, it plays out to our advantage. They're they're kind of stuck. Yeah. And, and a big part, you know, you, you saw in the, the, the statement, the 
commission and uh, local lawmakers put out uh, when the deal was announced last spring that uh, you know they they uh, they cited a study commissioned by Google as one of the main right. uh, you know economic impact reasons justifications for the the project. Uh, and so, as, as you say, they're kind of uh, they don't have a ton of other options. And that's Jeff Muskus bringing us up to speed on what Google is up to and what it may mean for how big tech continues to exert its influence, maybe in a way that we didn't anticipate. Yeah, exactly when the power industry, if you think about it, some of their needs uh, or power needs from other industries, they're not growing. But when it comes to big tech, they are. And it's giving that big tech uh, industry a lot more leverage when it comes to working with big power. His bio says he only eats fruit till noon. I'm sure everybody who covers him says this because it's a great line in your bio. He's a former rapper. He's also author of the New York Times bestseller, Living with a Seal, 31 Days Trading with the Toughest Man on the Planet. He co-founded the private jet card company, Marquee Jet. That was sold to Berkshire Hathaway. He has done so much in his life, owner of the NBA Atlanta Hawks, father of four. Now he's a millionaire life coach. He was recently the subject of the opener of the pursuit section of Business Week magazine. And Jesse Itzler is joining us. I'm so delighted to have you here with us. Thank you. And you're not done yet, are you? No, (laughs) I hope not. What is it about your DNA? Because you've gone a lot of different places. What is it that kind of drives you in your life? Uh, I'm a big check the box and move on guy. So I really just want to, I have a, a big appreciation for where I am in my life. And I believe in building my life resume more than my traditional resume. Right. So I'm just always kind of like finish something and on to the next. Never looking back. No. You know what, Carol? I want to go through this life like I'm – and at the end of the journey be like, I don't want to look back and be like, I was the 80% version of myself. So I really am sensitive to how much time I have left. Yeah. And just, you know, trying to do as much as I can. Right. Because you could, right? You're financially set that you could kind of – just do whatever the heck you want. Yeah. But you continue to like help other people. Talk to me about this life coaching that you're doing. We talked about this, wrote about it. Mm-hmm. Anders Mellon wrote about it in the magazine. Tell me what you're doing and why you're doing it. Well, I've had a very unorthodox business journey. You know, I started out uh, in the music business, coconut water with a company called Zico, which we sold to Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola right. And everything in my life, um, it wasn't really planned. I kind of just fell into it and started the process and turned it into a business. And this is not, This is no different. I wrote a book called Living with a Seal about a Navy SEAL that came to live with my family and myself for 31 days. And it led to um, speaking engagements and this and that, which turned into people wanting more. Right. They want to know more about, well, what's it like? You know, we're all wired to and told to like be around pe- like-minded people. And like-minded people tell us like-minded things. And we learn from stepping into the unknown and being around people that aren't like us. Right. So Getting a little uncomfortable, I always think. Yeah. So when I look back at my life and the various life experiences, I believe like the more you experience, the more you have to offer. Mm. And um, it just morphed into people asking me a lot of questions about business, about parenting, about I lived on a monastery for for almost a month. And it just led to a lot of questions that, you know, how could I help the most amount of people and share my experiences in these different buckets? And it turned into a coaching program. Well, tell us about this coaching program. Who actually, I think it, you know, who actually are the people who come to do it? These are pretty (laughs) successful people, right? Yeah. Various walks of life. Well, it's people from all different stages of life. It's from CEOs to moms and dads that are just feel overwhelmed and are looking for guidance. It's called Build Your Life Resume. Right. And it's really 
it's, it's interesting because it's not a business coaching course, although I offer business strategies and tips from my journey. It's really about most of us play defense in our life. Like our calendars fill up with appointments and meetings and weddings and all these different things and our calendars full and like the year goes by and I'm like, what do we do this year? Yeah. And this is really about playing offense. It's about what do you want to do? What are the things that you want to prioritize? What are the races you want to run? What are the adventures you want to take? What's the RV trip you want to take with your family? And right. scheduling that first, prioritizing yourself first, and letting those other appointments fill in around that. So at the end of the year, when you look back, you're like, whoa, I accomplished da 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 Instead of, wow, I'm living in routine and I'm going through like this, life like this. Then all of a sudden I'm 78 and I'm like, whoa, I can't run that marathon anymore. Right. You know, it's being much more on the offensive, right? Is what you're saying, playing offense and not being defensive. What's interesting though is it, it's physical, right? This is the equivalent of kind of I think the way we wrote it in the story, or Anders wrote it, equivalent to kind of climbing Mount Everest. Well, I have an event called Twenty Nine Oh Twenty. Well, that's what I want to talk a little bit about. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that's I've, separate. It's separate. Yeah, it's separate. I'm a really big, there's an old Japanese ritual. I learned about this from a guy named Kyle Korver who played for the Hawks, called the Masogi. And the notion around a misogi is you put one thing on your calendar so hard every year that the ben- that kind of defines the year yeah. and the benefits last the entire 364 other days of the year. And I was thinking, well, you know, looking for something I could do with my wife and my friends in the endurance sports kind of category because I'm an endurance athlete. Right. I love the celebration around endurance, how it makes you feel when you accomplish that, et cetera. I want to share that with more people, but I was frustrated because a lot of the options required you to be a great swimmer, an obstacle course racer, or a great runner, and that eliminates a big pool of people. You had to do so much to get to that point. Right. So I wanted something that could reach a wider group of of, a wider audience. So we created this event called 29029, which basically is we rent a mountain, you hike up the mountain, you take the gondola down, and you repeat until you climb the equivalent of Mount Everest. Right. And you do it within a set amount of time, Yeah, within right? 36 hours. Yeah. So we've had eight sold-out events, and um, my wife has participated, and I know you know my wife. Sarah Blakely, founder of Spanx. Yeah, yeah. And there's no winner. It's just kind of like a you versus you challenge. Yeah. And it's really something where um, – what I love about endurance events – it, they force you to be where your feet are yeah. and they force you to be super present in a really busy world. And um, these challenges have been amazingly successful because they're outdoors and they come down to one thing, will. Yeah. Not like, you know, I'm this amazing Olympic athlete, but like, do I have the will to stay in and do this? Right. Because it's lengthy, right? I think, you know, you have to have patience to do it, right? Like, you know, it's not something you're going to be done in four hours, right? Right. You've got to keep going. Right. Yeah. The last one took me 27 hours. God. Well, what do you make of um, my co-host Jason Kelly and I, we have a lot of guests on, you know, we are both um, just kind of in awe of what's going on in the wellness and fitness world. And I do think it's evolving to a place where even the medical community is realizing how much how important this is. It's not just to go to the gym once a week and, you know, eat crap the rest of the week. You know what I mean? And I, and I think you play into that, that people are really thinking about this is important. Set your goals at the beginning of the year, but it's, it's something that's going to have a much more lasting impact on you. See, I don't even like the word goals around wellness. Okay. It's lifestyle. Because if you start thinking goals and deprivation, that never works. Yeah. And, you know, I, it's about lifestyle. When I have a goal, 
it's that becomes my like right now. That's my lifestyle until the goal is done, and then I go back to my regular life. But I don't look at it as a chore. I don't look at it as like I'm depriving myself. I have like this is what I'm doing, and it's part of my daily routine. This month, I'm doing something called the Calendar Club that I coined, where every day I run the amount of miles that corresponds to the day of the month it is, and it's hard, brutally hard. But it's my lifestyle. Yeah. It's a commitment that I'm going through, and I don't negotiate those goals. They don't. I don't negotiate my goals. Like it's just that's baked into what I'm doing today. Right. And I'm so yeah. I'm just surprised that people are all of a sudden are like, wow, the benefits of this. It's like. You know, look how you feel right. when you accomplish. But do you know what I mean? It's not just like go to the aerobics class and just have some fun with your friends and then kick back the rest of the week or whatever. Like, I do feel like we're thinking more holistically about taking care care of this incredible machine that we've been given, Absolutely. right? And that we tend to abuse a lot. I think there's a big trend in that, obviously. And I think there's a big trend in experiences. And I think the days of vacationing on a beach are starting to go a little bit like this. And people yeah. want more. They want experiences. They want to learn, you know? It's like Gandhi said. It's like um, live like you're going to – learn like you're going to live forever. And wait, what did he say? Learn like you're going to live forever. Live like you're going to die tomorrow. Yeah. Right. It makes you think about things differently. You know, you've gone through so many different stages in your life, I feel like, you know. I mean, it's fun to read your bio, and I'm sure everybody asked you, you know, rapper and started these companies. I mean, what have you – take us back to one of those moments. I mean, I don't know whether it was, um, you know, the, the jet company or whether it was uh, the drink company. Like, is there a moment in time that really just made a, a marked difference on you in terms of your perspective on life? I've had so many of those moments, you know, and most of those big moments are around failure. And I remember when I, my music career started, I was on a show called Club MTV at the time. It was like a big deal. I was on top of the world. And then I went to do my first performance in Pittsburgh and I got off the plane. And on the cover in a magazine rack when I walked off the plane was a magazine called Rap Pages. And my picture was on the cover of Rap Pages. It was like the equivalent of being on like a fine, like, you know, like this, right? It was unbelievable. So I'm like, oh my God, I got to buy all these and send them to my family and my parents are going to. So I bought all these magazines and I'm at the checkout and I look at the headline and it says, are white rappers ruining hip hop? And it was my picture. Here, you can have these. Right. I'm not going to be buying these. And I didn't want to leave for uh, six months. I felt like I didn't even want to go out in the public. Yeah. You know? But guess what? Nobody remembers that. No. A couple of years later, we were doing $150 million at Marquee Jet. Like, your life in any second can shift. And you can have this, you know, your one idea, idea away from this life-changing moment. That's Jesse Itzler. And as we mentioned, he's been an entrepreneur. He was a rapper. He's done so many fascinating things. He keeps looking for what's next. And right now, what's next is his own endurance training and workouts, but he's also helping other people achieve that as well. Well, where else are you going to have a discussion about Run DMC <laughs> and ultra marathons and coconut water? He inspired me after it gave me some goals to go after. We're going to work on our life resumes together. Catch the entire interview that Carol did with Jesse Itzler. It's our Business Week Extra podcast. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Master. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast wherever you download your podcast. You can also watch the show live on YouTube. Just search for Bloomberg Global News. And you can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. We'll be back next week at the same time. This is Bloomberg. <laughs> 